Hi folks, a little bit of housekeeping before we start the podcast. This was my conversation with political correspondent and environmental journalist with the Business Post, Daniel Murray, from the 23rd of June. Uh, the reason I'm posting it now is Green Party Climate Chair Deputy Brian Ledden told it all that blaming data centres for the energy crisis or the need to buy uh, 350 million euros worth of emergency gas fire pla- gas-fired plants is a sensationalist trope. Listen to the podcast and you'll see it's clearly not... These data centers are causing huge problems for our energy capacity, our electricity generation, and what it means for everybody in the availability of electricity on the grid coming into the autumn and winter. Quick reminder, please, we rely on you guys. The, all these podcasts go out as quickly as we can turn them around. Uh, we recorded earlier with Fianza, which is the European group that deals with housing and homelessness, and that is out currently as well as our conversation last night with Ruth Coppinger, Camilla Fitzsimons, and... Lorraine Grimes, excellent conversation around Roe v. Wade and lessons from repeal. All of those are available now, including hundreds of our previous podcasts, all in one place, all in one feed, patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. And it's for the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap pint nowadays. Please support us and please continue to let people know where to find us. Really appreciate it and enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and because this podcast is before two in the afternoon, I'm on my own again because Martin's probably in bed. Bless his cotton socks. Uh, no, in, in fairness, folks, he's having an up and down time of it. So uh, yeah, we, we gave him the morning off. Uh, I am thrilled to be, uh, I'm going to say this in a, in a sarcastic way towards you, Dan. Dan, Dan uh, about time. <laughs> by by uh, political correspondent, but it also co- covers one of the best uh, environmental journalists as well around, D- Daniel Murray of the Business Post. Uh, Daniel, it's about time. It really is. We, we've been tic-tacking this for a Johnny. while. I know. I've been promising for a while to come on, so I've let you down on a couple of occasions. So no. I'm delighted to do it. But of course, my condition for coming on was that Martin, the attack dog, wouldn't be here uh, to interview me. So I'm glad that you you held true on that. Yeah, no. I, and in fairness, you did. You did stipulate that. <laughs> um, no, no. Uh, but look, the reason I suppose there's lots of reasons I'd love to talk to you. But one of them specifically now uh, is we're seeing more and more scary statistics. And I know you put out uh, some recently on uh, Ireland's emergency. Uh, electricity usage on on what our backup to our backup was, and I think we I was asking you, you know, uh, why we were struggling so much to to increase these. And I saw, I don't know if you if you saw it this morning, um, economist Seamus Coffee commented on on the, and he puts it in in, in different terms to, to to you now, but he he was he mentioned that Ireland um, was regularly passing four hundred million a month in imports on 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 energy. Uh, during the pandemic, it fell to 200, but now re- regularly we're paying over a billion a month. And it's just on this. Daniel, do you want to give me your overview on why we're so stretched? Uh, our, our grid is so overstretched and we are really, you know, not we haven't even hit the dark months yet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I guess maybe the first thing to do is to distinguish between two different energy crises that are ongoing at the moment simultaneously and and one is a wider kind of european energy crisis and that's has to do with gas uh, supply and it's as a result of russia's invasion of ukraine and plans to cut our use of russian gas across europe even though ireland uses very little uses very little russian gas so that's one crisis and that's separate and we can maybe talk about that 
um, later on, and there's a number of, of imp implications of that. But there's another one um, that is more unique to Ireland, and that has to do with our electricity demand. So although I didn't see that um, piece from Seamus Coffey when he's talking about the amount of energy we import, he's probably talking about all different energy sources. So I think we, we import 100% of our kind of petroleum needs, so mostly petrol and diesel for cars, but also then kerosene for, for home heating. So 100% of those come from overseas. Um, and then when it comes to the power sector, which is run primarily on gas at the moment, we import a very large volume of that gas from Britain, uh, which then comes into Britain from a few different uh, areas as well, like your mostly actually the those North Sea gas fields off the coast um, of Scotland, and then it comes down from from Norway as well. So the power system is is where we're we're seeing a unique domestic energy crisis here, and basically it it has to do with there was uh, there was uh, stats produced last year which showed that as of this winter Ireland was facing a really grave situation whereby the amount of power we supply we have so power generators that that you know use gas to generate supply renewables mostly wind at the moment that generate uh, power supply that that was going to be outstripped by demand by this winter so we would not have enough power supply to meet power demand and the CRU published a paper that said that from this winter, winter 2022, that was going to happen and that that gap, that kind of deficit is going to grow every year for the next few years out. And this is going to require um, something called emergency uh, power generation, which is going to be imported. And these are kind of like airplane jet engines, basically, that are being brought into the country. Their location hasn't been decided yet, but they're, they're going to be set up. Um, somewhere around the country, like, likely hosted on the site of another gas generator, like an ESB gas generator, plugged into the system to make up that gap. And, and at a huge cost, it's going to cost over 350 million just to purchase the generators. And then there's going to be the contracts to actually uh, pay for them, including the buying of the gas for them over the next number of years. So in summary, Ireland's power system has driven off a cliff edge effectively and um, we don't have enough power to to meet demand and although both the government the energy regulator and air grid that operates the electricity grid put forward a number of different reasons for why this is happening uh, including that they're retiring old more carbon intensive uh, power plants and um, and that they've had difficulty in securing new gas generation the primary problem has to do with demand growth mm. and the volume of demand growth is coming primarily from data centers, something that I get in a bit of trouble uh, for saying repeatedly, uh, but, it, but it's not untrue. Like we, we, we know they, exactly. We, we, we know that that the spike in demand is while domestic use is obviously maintained and, and increased. You know, uh, post post COVID, it's also uh, we've, we very much have seen a huge spike in in the requirements for these data centers. And we were told that you know, oh, well, that won't affect the grid, but obviously. If the pie is only so big, it, it has to. It, it simply has to. It can't just be, you know, oh, we've, we've ring fenced this over here. And, and I know you have said you've written about it several times. But what strikes me that's also interesting in that is, is you know, we're talking about 
like um, Ireland weaning itself off fossil fuels. We know everybody wanted to move away from Russian fossil fuels, particularly. We saw Ireland move away from uh, Russian coal to to replace it with uh, Colombian coal, which you know is just a, a, an awful uh, mine. Human rights abuses, murders, and disappearances mm-hmm. still happening, and we and we are burning that coal currently. Um, we have, and then we've seen all of these things, these statements of you know what our possibilities are for our renewable sector, but we haven't seen much traction there other than. The opening of the tendering process, uh, Daniel, for for uh, you know who's going to build it, what the infrastructure will look like. It's, we're not we're not replacing one with one. If we're, if we're bringing in what are effectively, as you said, big giant jet engines to to back up the backup. No, yeah, definitely not. Um, you know, the the we're we're talking just specifically about the power sector. We just haven't seen. There, well, sorry, there has been a ramp up in renewables over the last ten years, and they now power close to kind of forty five percent of the grid, and that that's a great a, a, achievement. Um, but the targets are for a further doubling of that, or sorry, tripling of that o- over the next decade, and that'll including an increase in demand would rise to between 70 and 80 percent renewables on, on the electricity grid. And um, but you're right, it isn't being matched one for one. And that's that is shown by the fact that uh, demand is growing at such a pace that we're having to build out the underlying energy supply system, which is underpinned by gas and in fact underpinned by coal still as well at Money Point, which unfortunately over the last year and a half has been running at a much higher rate than it has in, in recent years. And that's a trend that unfortunately is going to continue. And that, as much as uh, certain people don't want to hear it, is as a result of an of a unnatural growth in energy demand. And that growth is currently coming from almost exclusively data centers. If you look at the last kind of five, six years, uh, energy demand in the broader economy has been relatively stable. There has been some growth, but relatively stable. The growth from uh, data centers has grown by 265% there or thereabouts in the last five years. So it, it's outstripping it dramatically. And then over the next 10 years, um, we hear a lot of talk about how, well, of course, demand is going to grow because there's going to be electrification of cars and we're going to retrofit houses and put in electric heat pumps. So that will be electrified. And the electrification of the economy, which you can't really argue with in terms of a, a, a climate measure, it's it's only right that demand should should increase as a result of that. But half of the projected electricity demand growth in the next 10 years is predicted to come from data centers. Now, that's sometimes hard to get your head around. But the way I try to say it, which drives it home to people, is that Ireland's electricity demand will grow by twice as much in the next 10 years as a result of data centers than it would have if we didn't have data centers in place. Now, you get into an argument then about, you know, not all data is bad, not all data centers are bad. They're essential for a whole variety of things. But there is a debate that hasn't been had yet about uh, efficiency, about the sustainability of data, about, you know, what this data is being used for. Oh, look, wait, look, used for. You know, we, we've covered that in, in, in across this uh platform i know um we've often spoken to simon mcgar on on the use of, of all of this data and and how ireland actually is um a bottleneck for for uh data for good data law in in the eu because you know we we don't fill true cases we don't we don't process them in, in the same rate i think it's like uh, for every case for example successfully brought through on, on a data law legal basis in in uh spain i think it's eight in ireland would do one 
And in Germany, it's 32 to one, you know, the ratio. Yeah. We just, we are a bottleneck for, for this. And it's not, it's not good. So there is a, there's a conversation to be had about the wider use of, of data centers, why they're attracted to Ireland as well. You know, uh, what, what's yeah. the, what's the requirement there? But I also think it's, 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 it's a glaring miss up, missed opportunity to, to not be investing now heavier into the renewable sector because, you know, we, we, like I, I read the other day, uh, Pascal Donahue saying, you know, it was unlikely that, that Ireland would be granted an exemption to invest, uh, to borrow more money to build houses. Well, that's not true because the fiscal rules were paused during the pandemic and then re, and they, and the, the pause was extended again. Okay. So that's actually, and he knows this. He's, 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 he's a, he's a senior man in the Euro group, for God's sake. He's, he's a top guy there. But if you, if we can't then take that money now to invest in renewables, if we don't do it now, it's not a, it's not great if our rates are going from 0.6% to 2.2% to 4%. We should be locking these in now. Surely, surely, Daniel, that's where we should be grabbing the money now and starting these huge, huge state projects. You are right. I mean, we, it looks like we're at the beginning of a ramp up in, in interest rates across the board, and that'll affect everything from mortgage rates to government bonds. So now is the time to be borrowing. The government would probably argue that the volume of money it had to borrow over the last couple of years in particular, because the COVID pandemic was was pretty unprecedented in such a short um, period of time. But you're right that those rules have been suspended. And actually, even before those fiscal rules were suspended, there was talk, um, there was the beginnings of talk at a European Union level about loosening the rules around debt to GDP ratios. The problem, of course, in Ireland is debt to GDP P ratio means almost nothing. I think we have simultaneously one of the largest debts in Europe, but as a debt to GDP ratio, which is kind of oh. the key metric, it's I think it's just under sixty percent, which even, is like even the best. Yeah, ju- just to give be. just to give this to listeners the benefit of it, even within the rules that don't exist on the current on the current standing this year alone in the budget, Pascal Dunhu could have gotten uh, could have spent an additional three billion because our tax receipts run so well and our our, our economy boomed so much and it does so well. you know all of these you know the the, 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 the term le- leprechaun economics has kind of lost its meaning over the last few years. But nonetheless, our debt to GDP, if you looked on paper, we could carry a lot more because uh, yeah. it, on on paper we look we yeah. look like we're a wonderful uh, uh, booming economy. Yeah, exactly. And look, this is where you get to some of those kind of circuitous arguments as well, where, you know, I would point out the energy impacts of the like of data centers, but data centers are, uh, are owned by a lot of these very large multinational companies. Those multinational companies are, are booking so much revenue and profits in Ireland uh, that they're the ones showing up the corporate tax receipts, which arguably is what would allow us to, you know, spend more on capital investments or, or, or ordinary public expenditure. So you get, you kind of see their, why there's resistance within government and um, but you would have to argue as well that reliance on a small number of large companies like that is a very dangerous thing not only in terms of the stability of the economy and um, but you know in terms of democracy and in terms of your willingness to make certain calls on the basis of public good as opposed to on the basis of of, of the interests um, of, of a few companies one, so one, one company that I that I won't name uh, the uh, economist in Latin America told me book 63% of their profits through Dublin. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. so 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 when you talk about it, even as a threat to our democracy, it's also interfering in other democracies, the ability yes. to, to, to raise revenues themselves. So, so there is that argument to be had. Yeah. And you're quite right to point out, I think it's what is it? Five companies account for over 50 percent of our corporation tax yeah. take. That is yeah. not that's not dependence. That's reliance. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and so, look, I mean, wh- wherever the money comes from, and that is a, that is a, a big and a separate argument. You're right that investment in renewables now is the key thing. And um, there are I think there was the most recent climate action plan gave a breakdown of what it was going to cost over the next 10 years to implement climate action. And it gave a figure of around 125 billion uh, investment. But that was broken down with only about a third coming from the government and the other two thirds expected to come from business investment and from individuals. And what does that mean when it comes to individuals? What that means uh, me or you being willing to pay, uh, you know, 20,000 plus to retrofit our homes, even with generous uh, grants on top of it, being willing to, to find that money. First of all, if you can even save that, that type of money, uh, and then decide in terms of a, you know, a priority of things that those savings might go to that you would, uh, that you want to retrofit your house. I, I, I struggle to see how that's going to happen on mass over the next f- five to 10 years. And, um, you, in terms of the government's investment, there needs to be massive investment in, in infrastructure and, um, you know, public transport infrastructure. Um, but probably key to, to it all is air grid and the national grid. Um, and there are worrying sounds coming from industry. Now I, I speak to a lot of people in the energy industry and, and everybody's cheap kind of risk or concern is the rate of infrastructure build out by by air grid. Um, and that's for a few reasons. I'm not sure they've been given the budget that they need, first of all, to be able to build out in the next few years. It's been a long time since AirGrid has really delivered large scale infrastructural projects in 10, 15 years. There has been some things, but 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 very, very few. And actually ambitious infrastructure build out plans were shelved now because of the financial crash, but they were shelved back in kind of 2008, 2009. And people inside the industry, especially wind industry, solar solar industry, and generally uh, the renewable energy industry, are very concerned about them being able to hit their targets because of the ability of the grid to be able to handle um, the projected build out that's needed over over the next number of years. I had an interesting moment with um, Mark Foley, who's the uh, chief executive of of AirGrid at COP26 last year, where uh, he was at COP26 and Eamon Ryan, the Minister for Environment, was there. And Eamon announced that we were going to increase the renewable energy targeted power from 70% to 80%. And uh, he announced it at COP26 and Mark Foley, who's, you know, mm. uh, t- tasked with delivering this, was asked, what you know, what do you think of the 80% target? And he said, that was a nice surprise. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, I, I, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, no, that's not a kite he wanted to see flown uh, in that moment. But you I know, and, and, and everybody have had to go back just to just to finish on that. They've had to mm. go back and they're, they still haven't released a new plan, but they're having to revise their infrastructure development and their budget plans around the increase from 70 to 80 percent that may sound small it's a big increase uh, and especially in terms of what we have eight years approximately left and for that to actually be delivered well my other fear is and and uh, i've seen the industry tip sheets where whereby the many of the 
same managed funds that are that delivered us our built to rent model are keen to uh to to build out that infrastructure on this on a similar um low tax uh high return pro- yield profit uh, model and they are keen to do it they're saying yeah. we'll 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 fill the gap for you and uh yeah. the, but the answer then is is like similar to built to rent we don't own any of these properties we don't own the, we don't own what 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 we've done and we've handed it to international capital and it's it's something we've got to keep an eye on because I think it's you know we're gonna this tender process is going to be very interesting to see what 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 uh what company names uh, reoccur and what who is going in and out and I'm sure you're watching the lobbying register as well so it's all yes yes and the same the same name is cropping up again and again yeah it's it's uh, we must be you know, that's how sad it is maybe Friday evenings I open my phone and I go into the lobbying register <laughs> and check to see what's going what's bouncing around so yeah that's that's, that's why neither of us are any crack in the pub we're Oh, that, that's it. Um, listen, I want to move on a little bit though, because some of this really puts uh, into into perspective how much of a challenge we have versus you know what climate action can be effective and what how we can stay within these new carbon budgets. There's a it doesn't seem like we can achieve those things in reality. Even though you know it was all great to say we have the most ambitious uh, targets, we're going to put these in. You know, each department's going to be responsible for this. It reminds me, you know, when they, when they introduced the vacant uh, the vacant site levy, and they knew they couldn't collect it because the biggest problem was that they'd have to they'd have to collect it on themselves because Nama yeah. and all and, and the state were sitting on all this land. They'd have to collect it themselves, and they never collected a cent. This reminds me of something similar like that. Is that unfair? Well, no, I don't think it is unfair, and it, it's there's kind of there's a few gaps that are emerging that I find chiefly concerning. There's kind of a gap that's emerging between our targets that have been put into law and the plans that underpin them. But then there's probably a larger gap that's emerging between those plans and the action that's actually being taken to to deliver them. So maybe to start with the target. So we know now that we have a committed in law to reduce emissions by 51% by 2030. And that's in line with kind of best international climate science for what we have to do according to kind of the intergovernmental panel on climate change. It's a very ambitious target and it was quite a big deal to get it put into law, but it's easy to come up with the target. As hard as it was, it's the easy part to, to come up with the target and, and, and agree it. And that target itself is going to be split into two carbon budgets. And this whole process just seems, you know, it, it's kind of impenetrably complicated sometimes. So um, the best way to explain the carbon budgets is you're taking that 51% emissions that we have to reduce in the next 10 years, and you're splitting that into two five-year periods, so up to 2025 and then up to 2030. And you're kind of giving up a budget for how much carbon you can emit in both of those those periods and what the climate change advisory council did last year is they said right let's be realistic about this the first five years we're going to have to ramp things up we're not going to be able to reduce emissions by by that much so we have a larger carbon budget in the first five years we have a smaller carbon budget in the second five years as we're expected to emit less therefore reduce emissions emissions more and but the thing is, is that th- those those uh, the fifty one percent expressed through the carbon budgets have been set, and um, but then the recent EPA, so the Environmental Protection Agency, came came out with a report, and they said that the gap between the measures outlined in the most recent climate action plan, so that was the one published just last year at the end mm-hmm. of last year, and. Um, that if all measures in the climate action plan or all realistic measures in the climate action plan are implemented, they left out things like 
uh, hydrogen. They left out things like carbon capture and um, because they just didn't see them as immediately viable technologies. When they see a plan for them, they'll, they'll include them. But they said that instead of reaching 51% emissions reductions by 2030, we'd only reach 27.9%. Now, as I said at the beginning, that's the gap between our target mm. and the plan that underpinned that target. What I'm most concerned about is that in, in the coming years, we're going to see an even larger gap appear between the plans that underpin those targets, even if we ramp up those plans to meet 51%, and the action to, to actually achieve them. And the best indicator of whether there is action happening to achieve them or whether that, that action is delivering anything is carbon emissions themselves. And in that same report, the EPA showed that last year, unfortunately... We're back, baby! We're back. Yeah, the boom is back. Um, so uh, carbon emissions rose by 6% last year. They're, they say they're expected to stagnate this year. I wouldn't surprise me if they rose again this year. And they're hoping that by next year or the year after, they'll start to fall. So that's the, that ultimately all of this, what it boils down to is whether or not we see emissions reductions year on year. Um, and according to kind of those climate those carbon budgets, we're now faced with having to reduce emissions by about 8% per year from next year onwards. At the moment, we're not on course for anything even close to that. And, and that's where that gap between uh, plans and, and action is, is really beginning to manifest. And uh, can I can I ask you a question to put on your politics hat for a moment? Um, obviously, the Greens chose to go into government. They chose to fight that that battle on the inside. That was that was their ambition. I was <laughs> heavily critical of that, as as you as you're well aware. However, some of those things are gone into law. Some of those things are are, but but do you feel they're they're pushing against a, a more difficult situation now because everything has been put through the lens of oh, there's a war in Ukraine pandemic has stopped everything and this confluence of crises is, is giving cover to the the other side of that government actually not taking those steps yeah it's funny the 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 issue of the energy crisis in europe as a result of russia's invasion of ukraine but also the price of energy was an issue even but even before that but it's heav heavily exacerbated by by that there's kind of two arguments about whether or not it's it's kind of frustrating um, climate action or whether or not it's fast it's fast tracking it and there's elements of truth to to both in terms of the kind of um frustrating side of it um you are in a very dangerous position whereby the ramp up of renewables and the costs involved in doing that that there might not be appetite for that. And you can see it's already being utilized in particular by rural independents in, in, in the doll to kind of paint renewables as the bogeyman um, in, in this whole affair when the real issue, of course, is the fossil fuels and the price of them um, that has increased so, so dramatically. You also are having a kind of a, in an attempt to switch away from Russian gas, you're having economies across the EU switch to alternative fuel sources. And at the moment, that tends, to, the only thing that tends to be available is coal. Uh, you know, they've built out renewables as much as they can for today and they're trying to ramp up in, in the years ahead. But in terms of unused assets that can be ramped up or switched back on and brought out of retirement, it's coal. And we're seeing that happen in Ireland. Money Point, mm. the coal station was, it was effectively retired two years ago. You know, oh, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a huge story when they turned it back on for a while. Remember, it's like, oh, it it's, was. Money Point's been burning coal for 30 days straight and everybody was going, Jesus, what are we doing? Now it's, 
Now, yeah, now, yeah. now we need it. We actually were dependent upon it. And again, I, you know, I covered it. I we covered it the um, uh, Colombian election yesterday uh, with uh, Nicholas De Leal, a Colombian journalist, and, and he knows that they're committed to actually closing the Serahan mine themselves in, in Colombia, and we're taking the bloody coal over here at the moment. So this, this, and we'll be looking for new markets for these things. And you know, maybe that's the circular economy we're in now, Daniel. Not not the one that's environmental. <laughs> maybe it's this one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very good point. Um, but I, you know, the use of the likes of money point for coal, I mean, it's from a climate perspective, it's just completely unpalatable. It's not something that can, that can go on. It resulted in an increase in our uh, power sector emissions for the first time in years, um, last year. And, but you know, the power sector has been seen as kind of the, the best performer in, in class in terms of all of the different sectors. It has actually been ramping up renewables. It has actually been reducing emissions. So there's a reverse in trend there that, that is seriously worrying. So you, you have that happening across Europe, but then you do also have um, a new imperative to decarbonize and to get off gas. Um, and the European Union has released a plan called the Repower EU plan, where it, it wasn't really widely picked up at the time, but I did make sure to confirm it directly with the European Commission source. The plan um, increased. So before the plan was released, Europe's uh, gas use was planned to reduce by 30% by 2030, which is quite a large volume. This plan increases that to a reduction of 60% gas use, not only Russian gas, all gas use to reduce by over half in, in the next 10 years. Really, really radical. And some of that, unfortunately, is to ramp up of the likes of coal in the short term. But ultimately, they're putting in place plans to, to try and scale up renewables dramatically, to try and retrofit uh, homes across the continent to reduce energy use and, and to implement some energy demand uh, incentives as well so that people start to think uh, a bit more about energy. And similarly in Ireland, you know, we, we want to, and the Irish government here are keen to try and focus on using the crisis, the energy crisis in Ukraine uh, to ramp up renewables, but they're being pulled out from both sides there. And it is a dangerous, it's a very dangerous situation in terms of the buy-in. Um, for the clean energy revolution and um, because the pain that people are suffering in terms of energy prices it is certainly being utilized politically by some and being pinned on uh, on the clean energy uh clean energy efforts one thing you've said a couple of times now and it stands out to me and i want to go back i think it's the Eric Lonergan's book with Corinne Sires on, on supercharge me was about incentives, you know, about incentives. And we, we have, we haven't done well on that. I know some of the schemes we're talking about with retrofitting for people at the very bottom that, that it's free, you know, it's free at the point of contact, but it's not free for, for, for people in the middle. Uh, and it's, it's actually quite, quite expensive given we're in the, we're in an actual cost of living crisis globally. And our GDP has actually hurt us there because I, I, I think I want to point out that, for example, Spain is putting 6.9 billion of EU COVID recovery funds into retrofitting. Ireland was putting 221 million at the same, in, in the same, in the same, um, frame. Again, Ireland was hurt badly by our, uh, our inability to access those funds because of our GDP and how, and how, how we, how our books look because our domestic economy is not the same as, as our real economy. But it does also show that, you know, in, in other countries, other jurisdictions, they're, they're actually using the mechanisms that are available to them now, Spain, Portugal, these places. And, and we're, we're simply not really at the races, Daniel. 
Yeah, and look, I guess the, the government would argue that there's always competing interests in terms of what to spend money on and where to get it and how much and how much to borrow. But you're absolutely right that, I mean, the quickest way to drive this transition would be a state-led intervention and massive investment, um, you know, massive investment in public transport, create the options for people and not only create the options for people, but make them so convenient and so low cost that they, bec- they become no brain, no brainer options for people. I think that's the only way that you really get that massive behavioral uh, change. Um, and those incentives at a kind of consumer level, including carbon taxes and stuff, you know, they make sense in, in, in one respect. And then in another, you know, with the current energy crisis, the whole premise of carbon taxes has been blown out of the water because, you know, the premise is to increase fossil fuel prices to a point that becomes, uh, I guess, unsustainable for people to continue. So people start making longer term decisions about switching to, to cleaner transport. Now, We've had such growth in energy prices that would have outstripped even the largest growth in carbon attack, carbon tax that would have been presumed over, over the next uh, 10 years. And people don't have other options. And until those other options are in place, people can't switch. It's not only that they won't, won't, they, they just physically can't switch. No, I'm, 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 and it's simply put, all stick, no carrot, you know, and we can't. Yeah. Be, we're 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 stuck in a we're stuck in a realm where all we all we have is a room full of sticks, <laughs> and, um, yeah. and that's not going to get it done. I did want to ask you um, about your your own role. I know you've been. Um, I think climate journalism is is kind of different. I know John Gibbons refers to his uh, his his writing as a as as campaigning uh, journalism do you feel that that uh, it that when you're writing about the environment when you're writing about climate that it's actually it's not one of those issues where you say i'm going to i'm doing this and i'm going to play it straight down the middle that you're actually are there is an activism to it yeah i think well first of all john is like the epitome of a campaigning a journalist he's done amazing work in the climate space and you can see the role very important role he's played in communicating really complex science in a way that is emotive and in a way that has really kind of um, rallied people and probably driven a lot of action and a lot of awareness around. Well, let's tell the, let's let's call a spade a spade here. John is not going to join me on the barricades as a lefty, and yet there he is able to communicate <laughs> these perspectives that we share all in common. So yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's great to have that uh, that that that, yeah. that perspective. Absolutely. And look, his, his passion for it is kind of unmatched. I, I haven't met anybody really, really like him and his ability to communicate. But I, I think on my front, there, there's a couple of things. One, um, there is always an element of campaigning for it, but not my version is not necessarily in the same style that, that John's is. I mean, I have to campaign for space in the paper. Now, having said that, the Business Post has been absolutely brilliant and has really backed the environmental and, and energy agenda. Um, but it was something at the beginning, I remember when I started and, and they asked me, what did I want to cover? And I said, I'd be interested in doing environment and energy coverage. And the question was, you know, was it businessy enough? And, you know, I, I had to explain it was the biggest business story around um, and it was definitely worth spending time on. So I think although we have a we have a brilliant kind of editorial policy around environment taking environmental issues seriously now in the business post and explaining the implications for for business readers in, in particular you know other papers and my other colleagues who work in the environmental space i know that the campaign for space you know for um for just word count is 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 a big thing and that's it that's a campaign that happens every day 
Then you're also kind of campaigning for people's understanding as well. And that's a very, very difficult, um, a very difficult thing because the area that covering environmental issues or more specifically covering climate issues, like it just takes in so many disciplines. It's very hard as a journalist, first of all, to, to get to a stage where you feel like you can write about it competently or confidently in any way. Cause in, on any given day, you could be talking about very high end engineering. You could be talking about climate science, which you can't make heads or tails of. You could be talking about agricultural science. And um, there's all of these economics. There's all of these different um, areas. And yet you, you have to have a, uh, you know, a bit of a grasp on each of them, or at least the phone numbers of people <laughs> who who do, uh, and to be able to ring and get them to translate for you. So I think that campaign for for understanding both for yourself and then for the wider public, being able to translate it in a way that that people uh, understand it and understand the gravity and the importance of it. That that is an on uh, ongoing campaign as well. But I do try to take approach uh, an approach to my journalism to to play it straight down. Uh, the line and you know i could have a, an article in in one week that talks about the benefits of a government initiative and in the same week uh, have an article talking about how they have completely blown their carbon targets and there's no chance that they're going to hit them and, and i'll play both of those stories straight for for what they are and I, I do think i do think it's important it's important for your credibility um you know amongst the various groups that that are involved in this and i think there are others who do campaigning very effectively, much more effectively than me, because they're much better communicators than uh, than I am. But I try play play it very straight. I I would say here's the thing. First of all, uh, don't, don't be modest. Uh, you're 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 a good communicator. You've shown that you've had a you have your own your own uh, you have your own podcast and you communicate with plenty of people very well. But what I would put it to you is that okay, uh, absolutely no one not questioning your reporting. But I'm just saying. You'd have to have a passion for for the topic. You have to have a passion for the subject, and when you do, that is that is absolutely you. You can't leave that at the door when you're when you're when you're uh, when you're doing that. Um, I I just happen to be someone who who always declares his uh, his um, biases, and and and, uh, and I'm not saying you have bias. I'm saying I I would be always up, up front and say to people, you know, look, let's 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 call a spade a spade here. If you're going to talk talk to, to someone in the tortoise shack, we try to tend lean left, you know, uh, yeah. and we do think we do think in. in in terms of red green, uh, yeah, so, yeah. But, but and look, Tony, you know, one man's biases are another man's facts as well. And I think you're right. For some people, the fact that I even come in and I put environmentalism to the fore of some of my reporting, and I don't question the climate science. I mean, privately, I can question climate science, but what I mean is I've arrived at a place where I absolutely 100% believe what the best international climate scientists are saying to me. Some people would see that as bias, you know, and um, so uh, the, it's a different, people are approaching this in, in, in different ways. I, I approach it in a way that the climate science is now indisputable. The potential impacts over the last 50 years are quite terrifying uh, or the next 100 years are quite terrifying and in my view it, indisputable uh, and that's at the core of, of all of my reporting and some people would would find that difficult because it begets a radical policy for decarbonization that others think is reckless well, um, I, I, but, the conversation we've had around that and seen it more and more is they'd rather go back and have have this conversation about the science about the things that that, that we we believe is settled and yes. there's also an element that they want to have a conversation um, about. You know, they look at a graph on e on economics and they'll say, "Well, the cost of doing something now is too is too it's too pricey. Why why bother doing it?" Without realizing that we're getting close to that tipping point where the where the cost is actually going to dead go completely the uh, multiple above what what we're avoiding doing now. So so there's 
but when you're dealing with graphs, sometimes you know, uh, and and you can you can take comfort in that graph because it says actually it's it, it's it's less costly to, to, to uh, it's less costly right now. So and it looks yeah. outside, I look outside the window and it doesn't look too bad, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And Tony, that, that those groups like those climate denialist groups, they exist. I mean, they exist right across Europe, but they they exist in Ireland as well. And I've been even attended events by them, and they're very clever because they do. I mean, they're backed by commercial interests, none of which they disclose. But I've been at events where I've seen a number of fossil fuel executives at them and they they're very clever the same as the entire lobbying or communications public relations industry you know they take the commercial interests of clients or at least of the interests that they're representing and they retrofit those onto both policy imperatives and onto kind of media imperatives and they're very very good at it um, and they're able to influence debates around these things in ways that seem very reasonable you know like the economic cost uh, of actually taking uh, taking action and so th those are i think those when you see where a lot of those views are coming from you understand um that they aren't uh, always honestly held yeah no there's some bad faith actors but really well polished at actually and they change language around these things you know and, and i like the idea how you say they can retrofit their arguments back to uh, to to be, be make those persuasive points look i won't it's it's quite easy to do actually tony and i worked in pr for a while as well and it's it's, it's if you're giving it as a brief you know these are our commercial interests and mm. you know what are the political buttons we can press and what are the media debates we can inject ourselves into it's not that hard an exercise to do but some people are exceptionally good at it and it shapes a lot of debate around a lot of different things it does um dan is the, is the podcast coming back Yes. Uh, so the plan is to have another season out by the end of this summer. I hope by the end of uh, July, so I can take some holidays myself in August. And um, so yeah, we're, we're we're planning to do six or eight episodes. We're on to season five now. I kind of can't believe we're on to uh, on to season five. So five degrees of change. Our, our environmental podcast with the Business Post. So uh, great to get the plug in there, Tony. Not at all. I, I, look, as a, I, I'm looking forward to it. And, and and you know, you know, I'll be you know, I'll be in your DMs giving out about. If I if I if I don't if I don't agree, so I will be blocked. I'll yeah. be blocked by the end of the summer, Tony. No problem. Listen, folks. Um. Oh, again, and the, the business post. Uh, it's it's one of those subscriptions that I always recommend. Uh, so so do support the the work that's been done. You know, I I got a bit of criticism this weekend because someone I made a comment on about the commentariat. And I do think there's a huge difference between what we call views papers and newspapers. And a lot of the work that's done, the actual newspaper work of ordinary journalists in the business post is top quality, including people like like Dan. So, yeah, support the work. Uh, we leave it there, folks. Back tomorrow morning with actually business post contributor aiden regan <laughs> uh, we're taking him. over we're taking over myself killian woods aiden regan we're going to take over tortoise shack once yeah, and for all. Uh, uh, that that uh, I, i'd get a week off it'd be great talk <laughs> soon folks take care bye-bye tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Subscribe now on Patreon.